Blog Talk Radio. Hey, we're back on the air. This is Janice Lindstrom with the Music Therapy Show. And uh, today, we're, this year probably, all we're doing are Journal Club shows. And uh, here's why we've been gone for so long. So I have with me Dr. Megan Moscow. Thanks for joining me, Megan. Hi. Hello. And uh, I have not scheduled any shows since, what, August is our last one maybe? I don't know. It's yeah. been a while. Because uh, I started graduate school and a new job, and I have a three-year-old, and I just couldn't fit anything else in. And so this show and journal club were one of the things that I took off my plate last semester. Um, but I didn't want to get rid of it altogether because I do journal club simply because I want to keep up with the research, and this sort of forces me to read the journals, or at least scan them, which is all I really do now uh, is, since I'm in school, is I read the, the abstracts. And then I invited Megan. I forget when we started this. It was several years ago. But I invited Megan to join me because uh, she's so brilliant, actually does research, <laughs> and agreed to talk to me about research so that I wouldn't only have my opinions and thoughts to, uh, to think about when I look at this research. So that's why this show happens. Uh, what have you been up to over the, the hiatus, Megan? Well, I moved. Um, I moved from Mm -hmm. North Dakota to Indianapolis and started a new job at Indiana University, Purdue University, Indianapolis, where I have the great pleasure of getting to work with Drs. Deborah Burns and Sherry Robb. And I am teaching and doing research, um, and I also uh, was able to take over at TakeOver. It sounds like it was hostile. Um, I was asked... (laughs) (laughs) I was asked to become the chair for the Affiliate Relations Committee for the American Music Therapy Association. So I've been doing lots of work with that fantastic group of people. So shout out to my ARC peeps. They really are the best. We have math. Oh, that's always good. I always forget what that committee does. Can you refresh our (laughs) memories and remind the members what we're supposed to do? Like, aren't we supposed to report some things to to that committee? We are, and we are working really hard to actually make that a lot easier for members of AMTA. So the whole, the whole, what is it that you do? We're looking for a new name. So if you have, we have some suggestions for a new name. If you have a suggestion for a new name for us, please let us know. So the Affiliate Relations Committee is really the committee that um, helps AMTA, first of all, know who their members are that have dual certifications. So if you're... Mm like a music teacher and a music therapist or a licensed family counselor, a licensed professional counselor and a music therapist. So we have, we actually have lots of professionals who are duly certified. So we help the association, number one, keep track of who those people are. And number two, and the reason we do that is because a lot of times those folks are also members of that other professional association. And so they can be a bridge, a communication bridge between different Um, organizations and different professions and we encourage people to collaborate with other professionals and we encourage them to present at conferences and publish in journals of other professions so we really are the sort of the professional we're the sort of the interdisciplinary outreach committee maybe that's a good name oh I like that title Okay, so then if you have dual certification or are members of another professional organization or present to other professional organizations, then we should tell 
our Affiliate Relations Committee representative. You should, and every region has one. All right, and that leads into our uh, Social Media Advocacy Month, because uh, connecting with these other disciplines is part of advocacy for music therapy. And every January, our association asks us to, along with CBMT, ask us to participate in Music Therapy Social Media Advocacy Month, where we talk about how we use music therapy um, and, and advo- to advocate for our profession, how we use social media to advocate for our profession. And the theme this year is your guide to advocacy zen. And if you go to heartbeatmusictherapy.net for this episode, the post for this episode, which is number 230, can you believe it? 230 episodes wow. of the Music Therapy Show. Um, it, it has the details about what that means, the, your guide to advocacy then. Just briefly, it talks about being reactive or proactive in your advocacy efforts. And I wanted to talk, you can read the details on the blog post, but I wanted to talk about um, how research helps us to be reactive or proactive for advocacy efforts. Okay. So um, one of the great things about research is that it can be both reactive and proactive. And um, in in the reactive sense, when we hear somebody say something about music therapy and we think, gosh, that doesn't seem quite right, or, you know, I'm not sure that that's actually music therapy, um, the research base, the evidence base, is the place where we can go as music therapists to find the information that we need to help respond, not a huge fan of react, but respond to, um, let's say, miscommunications about music therapy or misrepresentations in music therapy. On the flip side of that, we can, research helps us be really proactive. And what I mean is that music therapy research is what helps us help our clients access our services. So when decision makers are making decisions about who's going to be able to access music therapy services, you know, how they're going to do that, is insurance going to cover it, are we going to include it in a Medicaid waiver, Um, are we going to add a music therapist to our treatment team, those kinds of decisions. The research base is what allows those decision makers to make informed decisions. And and I, what I'm going to say might not be terribly popular, but we know that music therapy is lovely. We know that it's fun. We know that our clients love it. But that's not how decision makers make decisions. That's not how people who are in charge of multi-million dollar budgets and agencies make decisions. Just because something is nice doesn't mean that it's going to become a service that they provide. The research base is one of the tools that we have as music therapists to be able to advocate for our profession, to be able to help decision makers decide to include music therapy in their um, service provision. And it also, and, and that is what helps our clients access services. And at the end of the day, it's always about our clients. Um, so that's, Music therapy research can help us respond to issues, and it can also help us increase access to services. Awesome. Thank you for that, Megan. Uh, Let's jump into the research. 
the first article, so we're talking about the Journal of Music Therapy from summer 2016, which is volume 53, number two, jumping in where we left off all those many months ago. Uh, yeah. so we have a feasibility trial on improvisational music therapy for children with autism spectrum disorder. Uh, and this was done in Denmark and Norway, for, so music therapists from Denmark and Norway. Uh, and uh, this seems really familiar to me. Didn't we read an article in Perspectives not too long ago about this? We have. So this is actually part of a large group of music therapists um, in at least two different countries that are working together on this improvisational music therapy um, protocol. So we read about the protocol and how they developed the protocol and how they kind of came up with the theoretical constructs on which their, um, essentially it's a whole program of research is based. And so now this is the next step in that scientific process, which is the feasibility trial. Now, now we start to figure out, can we actually do this thing <laughs> that we said we were going to do. That's really what a feasibility mm-hmm. study is. Um, and I'm so excited to see this article. I'm thrilled that this process is taking place with this large group of collaborators because they are really, they're taking something that it, at its heart is kind of hard to define, right? Improvisational music therapy. Um, it's a little hard to nail down. And applying the scientific process to it. And for me, as a scientist who's also a music therapist, that's really exciting. And what's nice about this article is they have laid out step by step everything that they've done. And the reason they've done that is because really science should be replicable. I should be able to sort of give you the recipe for the thing that I did, and then you should be able to take that recipe go to a similar group of people and get relatively similar results, right? And replicability actually is a huge problem in the scientific literature. And it's not just music therapy. It's all of scientific literature. And it's really a cornerstone of, of science is being able to replicate um, studies. So that's what they've done here is they've given us as much information as possible about what they're doing and how this study works so that theoretically somebody could go out and do it again. And they've done a beautiful job with this article. Um, I do have one thing for people that are reading this article, and I'm a big fan of visual aids and research because I'm a visual thinker. So on page 99 of the journal, they have figure one, and it's the flow chart of study participants. And they, they show you exactly. <laughs> yep, they show you exactly who was recruited and where and what happened, who got randomized to which um, uh, which group. But I will tell you that where it says four children in high intensity music therapy, there is an error, and this happens all the time. Um, for anybody who's listening who really wants to go on a treasure hunt, there is a huge error in one of the figures in my dissertation which I did not find until after it was published. <laughs> of course. <laughs> you know, after 11 people had already edited it. So have fun. Mm-hmm. Go on a little treasure hunt. Um, so it says four children in high-intensity music therapy, improvisational music therapy, one session per week up to 60 sessions. That actually, that one time a week was actually the low-intensity setting. They just accidentally flip-flopped the verbiage. In, I was in wondering those two about boxes. that. Yeah. <laughs> So I actually, I went back because I, 
I tend, I read the abstract, um, and then I tend to go and look at the and go right to the methods. Um, and if there are pictures, I immediately go to the pictures. So I saw mm -hmm. that, and I was reading it, and I thought, oh, that doesn't seem quite right. So then I went back and was reading the study design and procedures, and it is. It's just a, it's a typo. It's a typo. That's fixable. Um, Alrighty. So they had these three control. They had these three, um, excuse me, not control conditions. One condition was where kids had just usual care, and these, and that was uh, parental counseling, I believe. No music therapy. These are children with mm -hmm. autism spectrum disorders. Um, they had three children in this low-intensity music therapy group, which was improvisational music therapy one time a week, up to 20 sessions, and parental counseling, and uh, three sessions of parental counseling. And then the high-intensity group was three sessions per week of improvisational music therapy and then three sessions of parental counseling. And, and that, those three conditions continued for five months. And um, what they found, not surprisingly, actually probably surprisingly to the researchers, and it looks like it was surprising to the researchers. I love how open and honest they are in their assessment of themselves. <laughs> um, they were surprised that they had problems with um, treatment adherence in the high-intensity music therapy group. So that group that had three sessions of music therapy per week, they didn't have very good treatment adherence. Um, I, th I think it was, gosh, I'd have to look now. I think it was maybe 50% adherence. Oh. It, was, it was pretty low um, of, of people who actually did like the, the, oh, yeah. Yeah, it was 51%. That's on page 106. So they only had 30 people who, act, they only completed about 30 of the possible 60 sessions. Um, which does not surprise me. And for people who know me, they know that I have a son who is on the autism spectrum. He is autistic. He proudly wears his, his autism. Um, we're big on neurodiversity in our household. And he, that does not surprise me. As somebody who has been at this point in my child's life, there's a lot of therapies happening. It's really hard uh -huh. to get people everywhere they need to be. And music therapy three times a week, especially if you're juggling OT and PT and social skills groups and all kinds of other things. And they talk about there were folks who were single parents. They had transportation issues. There were child care issues. That's, that doesn't surprise me um, that that was an issue. They had awfully right. good adherence, though, in the one-time-a-week group. The one-time a group, the one-time a week group actually had a 93% completion rate. Hmm. So as a researcher, that, that tells more feasible me, oh, then. <laughs> yeah, right. That's what feasibility studies are. It's like, oh, I have. I'm not sure if I can get right. Here's the thing I want to do, but if I can't get people to do the thing I want to do, then, you know, you have to go. You have to go back and revise what you're doing. So. Um, they talk a little bit about the treatment fidelity. How did people um, adhere? And this is this relates back to that article that we talked about before. That I do believe. I think you're absolutely right. I think it was a music therapy perspective. Um, so if you haven't read that one yet, that'll help you read this article. 
they didn't have any safety issues. So that's always good. They talk about blinding and retention. Um, I would have to say one of the things I did look at, too, again, I like pictures, um, and I like it when people talk about pictures. This is not a picture thing, though. This is on page 114. Um, they, again, they're very self-reflective, which I appreciate. They talk about um, what they need to do, you know, in the future. They, talk, they say on page 114, in future studies and clinical decisions about combinations of different therapy approaches, family burden associated with travel time and location of services requires due consideration. And I think that's really important because, you know, you have functioned as a clinician for a super long time, right? And I don't function as a clinician as much anymore. Um, And I think sometimes it's really easy for researchers to forget that the people with whom we're working and doing research are people (laughs) and they have lives Mm -hmm. that don't revolve around our research. So I was, I was, I was happy to see that, to see the researchers going, Oh, you know, we need to take life into consideration here. Yes. All right. Shall we move on to the next article? Absolutely. So this one is called music therapy helped me get back to doing Perspectives of Music Therapy Participants in Mental Health Services. This was uh, by Triona McCaffrey and Jane Edwards in uh, Ireland and Australia. What an international issue we have. What? I know. This Our next one's by people study. from Korea. I know. This oh, is a qualitative so cool. study. And, okay. I, and I'm a big fan of well-done qualitative studies. Um, what, what I liked about this Study, and I'm gonna, there are a lot of things I liked about it. The, the first one is I appreciate how clear the authors are about the approach that they took in their methodology. Now, there are a lot of big words on page 125, and I'll be honest, I had to look up some of them, and I have a pretty significant background in qualitative research. But yeah. I had to look up how phenomenology and her, hermeneutics my husband says that word really well. I never do. And ideograph, ideography come together to create IPA, because I'll be honest, I saw IPA and I was like, oh, it's the International Phonetic Alphabet. Wait, that can't be right. Mm, no. Because <laughs> I'm an old opera singer, and that's how my mind works. Um, but they conducted interviews in Ireland with um, some uh, participants that I believe Trina, with whom Trina was working. Um, they recorded the interviews and then went back and did analysis. And I loved the themes that they that emerged from these interviews. It wasn't a very big group. Qualitative research typically is not. Um, but again, quantitative research is often about breadth of information, whereas qualitative research is really about depth of information. And they got some great depth. Um, so the themes that came up, and I just made a list as I was reading through the results section, and I think, and they really resonated with me, and I suspect that they'll probably resonate with other clinicians too. First of all, that music therapy is personalized as opposed to other healthcare settings and approaches. So Luke in particular talked about how 
um, music therapy was individualized, it was personalized, and he felt acknowledged as a unique individual as opposed to sort of just being another patient. Um, music therapy is playful, and uh, it's musical. At its heart, it is musical, and that aesthetic experience is really important. And I know that we talk about this a lot in the music therapy profession, and sometimes we strongly disagree about it um, on the listserv. But aesthetic experience is really important in the human experience. You know, Ethair Gaston had a thing or two to say about that. So I, I like that actually several of the participants talked about um, the music and the aesthetic experience. And as clinicians and as researchers, it's really important to remember that that aesthetic experience is, is a part of who we are as human beings. Um, one of the things was that music therapy is interpersonal. It encourages interpersonal connection. This was one of my favorites, and that it is music therapy is ability-focused. And a couple of the participants talked about this. So rather than about music therapy being about what you can't do and trying to fix that, so to speak, Music therapy looks at what are the things that you can do and how can we use those things that you can do to help with, the, with any difficulties that you're having. And that's one of the things I love about being a music therapist is we're just generally mm -hmm. positive people. We focus on the abilities of our clients and how can we use those abilities to help them achieve more in other aspects of their lives. Um, that music therapy is wellness. It's, it focuses on wellness, um, and I like that idea of holistic wellness. There was an admonition from one of the participants, and I, can't, I think it was the last one, who, um, the Kar Karma, yeah, Karma talked about um, how powerful sound is. And she was really hesitant to come back to music therapy because the sound was a little bit overpowering. Um, and she talked a little bit about noise and how it prompted some apprehension. Um, so I, it was a reminder to me that sound is a really powerful tool, and we need to be careful with how we use it. And finally, that music therapy is multimodal and multisensory. It's a multimodal, multisensory experience. And so all of these themes together, for me, reinforced you know, how I already feel about music therapy and how I've seen my clients respond in music therapy. Um, and for me, what I appreciate, I think something else I appreciated about this article was that um, – it was a reminder of what's really fantastic about music therapy, but it was also a reminder of why it's important to be appropriately trained to be a music therapist. Because Interesting. a board-certified, you know, an appropriately trained and credentialed music therapist has the skill set to personalize music therapy, to make it playful and therapeutic, you know, to be able to, to integrate that aesthetic experience and value that aesthetic experience while also being mindful of the potential contraindications and being able to help cl 
clients work through issues that emerge because of their experiences in music therapy. So it was. It was a, a, a gentle reminder of the importance of appropriate training as well. Maybe not what the author that. intended, but I got that. <laughs> I have always we talk had a about hard time our... figuring out how to use qualitative research as evidence-based practice or to inform my evidence-based practice. And, and the way that you describe the themes from this article really highlights how it can do that. And I kind of want to focus on those themes uh, in my work this next year. Right? And how wonderful is it because I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, gosh, these could be whole programs of research. These themes could be whole programs of research in and of themselves. You know, we could look at personalization of music therapy as opposed to, quote, standardized care. Um, I mean, I, I, again, qualitative research, you know, it's not about it being generalizable. It's about helping us understand the depth of what we're doing which we can't really get from surveys and, you know, pain rating scales and all of that. Right. Um, but you can, but you know what, when I was talking earlier about decision makers don't want, don't just want stories. They do want stories, but they want stories and numbers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's why they're, there is room at the music therapy table for every kind of research because all of it mm-hmm. helps us build our evidence base and all of it helps our clients access services. So, All right. We have three minutes left in the live show, which means we have uh, 18 minutes to finish the next two articles. Okay. Oh, we got it. We got uh, it. Because I so actually don't have much to one. say about the next article. Oh, excellent. Okay, well, it is a meta-analysis and a systematic review. It's called Rhythmic Auditory Cueing in Motor Rehabilitation for Stroke Patients, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis by uh, Dr. Kim and uh, uh, Ms. Yu, Mr. Yu. I I really am not sure, and I apologize if I screwed that up for you. Um, But anyway, they're from from EHA Women's University. At uh, uh, in in Korea, right? Yeah, Seoul, South Korea. Go yeah, Korea. Seoul, Korea. Okay, so this Did you say is a systematic came out? review, yeah, probably. <laughs> yeah. So this is a systematic review. I'm a big fan of the systematic review um, because I think that students and clinicians can get a lot out of them. Um, it's like somebody did half the library work for you. So. Um, So if you're a student and you are, let's say you have to write a paper on neural rehabilitation, gosh, you should probably start looking for some systematic reviews like this one. Or if you're a clinician who is getting ready to make a proposal for services at a rehab facility or a rehab unit of a hospital, you should probably have a few systematic reviews ready to go. Um, This Systematic reviews in general, Cochrane reviews especially, but this is not a Cochrane review, but systematic reviews in general highlight some issues with the music therapy literature base, um, which is that 
a lot of times the, mu- the word music therapy gets used, and it actually has it's not music therapy. So you'll see when they went looking for articles, they originally had over 1,500 articles, and by the time they got down to what was actually going to be included in the systematic review, they were down to 10. <laughs> so, and I, I believe it was duplicates and irrelevant titles accounted for almost for over 1,400 of those initial electronic records that they found. So just beware, you know, when you're looking for music therapy articles, make sure that they're actually music therapy and make sure that they're actually about the thing you think they're about. Um, the, the literature, what's nice about this is they have some beautiful uh, tables in here, and there's a great one on page 157. That gives you sort of a brief rundown of what the articles are about. You know, um, do they, essentially how does the article work? And then they give you these other tables. Um, one of them is about gait training. One of them is, a couple of them about gait training. One of them is about um, gait, gosh, rhythmic auditory cueing on gait parameters. Um, So they give you some fantastic information and essentially the results from all of these articles in lovely table format. So you don't have to go read all of these articles individually. You can read the summary. I mean, you can essentially read the results of these articles, which again is great if you're a music therapist and you're trying to get a presentation ready or you're trying to, you know, get get some interventions ready for your work, systematic reviews can be a great way to go. So that's what I have to say about systematic reviews. The other thing I want to say about systematic reviews is if you look, they have a list of all of the articles that are included in the systematic review. And not everybody has access to all of those articles. If they're not in JNT or NTP, you may or may not be able to access them. But your public library should be able to help you get your hands on articles that you can't necessarily get on your own. So go make friends with your public librarian. Yeah, librarians are awesome. And they enjoy oh. doing research. So we might They're as well the best. let them help us. Uh, the only problem I have with articles like these is trying to figure out what the numbers mean and oh, the, yes. um, the acronyms that are used. So uh, you have to spend a little bit of time interpreting what those mean and maybe seek some help with yes. that. Um, yeah, I do a lot of Googling. I mean, I've got a pretty good background in statistics and data analysis, and I still Google things. All right. So see, Google can be useful for research. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but All right. Don't you dare so use it in my class. <laughs> The last article is, uh, I always tell my students to use it when they ask me silly questions like, what does phenomenology mean? What does Google right, say it means? Right, that's fine. Yes, Look it dictionary. <laughs> Merriam-Webster.com. All right. And then they're like, I'm allowed to use Google to, for it to answer those questions? Yes, you are. Uh, all right. Yes. So the last article is Vocal Music Therapy for Chronic Pain Management in Inner City African Americans, a Mixed Methods Feasibility Study. And these are all uh, music therapists from Drexel University. Yeah, so if you aren't aware, Drexel is in Philadelphia. So it is 
in the inner city. Um, All right. So this is this is a mixed method study. Um, mixed method studies are great because we talk about quantitative and qualitative. Mixed methods sort of gives you the best of both. You can get depth of information from the qualitative pieces, but you can also get breadth of information from the quantitative pieces. And depending on how you use those different approaches to research, um, those different methods, you wind up with different information. So in this article, this is an intervention study because they actually did something. Um, and they, they used a randomized controlled trial um, with groups of African Americans who are, were diagnosed with chronic pain. And I had the good fortune of being able to see Dr. Brott present, some, present on, I think, the preliminary study that she did on this um, at the National Institutes of Health. So there were two groups. There was a vocal music therapy group, and they explained what the vocal music therapy interventions looked like. Um, and then there was a waitlist control group. So people were still going to get music therapy. They just had to wait for it. Um, so the vocal music therapy group, there were 28 people in it. They had an, a weekly one-hour vocal music therapy session. And everybody had uh, baseline measures. And then the, both, the random, both the vocal music, that's really hard to say, vocal music therapy group and the <laughs> waitlist group completed some quantitative measures about, I think it was pain and anxiety and some, some other issues um, at weeks four and eight of the intervention period. And then at the follow-up, they had the waitlist group did the quantitative measures again, and then the vocal music therapy group had, did the quantitative measures again at this 12-week follow-up, and they also participated in focus groups. And so that's where you can see the qualitative piece come in. It's all quantitative up until that 12-week follow-up point which is when the qualitative piece comes in and the vocal music therapy group participated in a focus group about their experiences. There's a very nice chart on page 183 to help you work through all of it. Um, so outcomes for me were, were really interesting, um, as they often are in music therapy research. Uh, again, if you want to look at on page 190, there's a flow chart of who participated and who didn't and why, um, the reasons why people didn't participate, most of them are life. But there's one mm -hmm. that is really important for researchers to remember, and that's there were two people who were overwhelmed by consent form language. And oh. if you've, yeah, so if you've ever written a consent form for research, because I bet you're going to have to do that in your doctorate. Um, mm hmm we're supposed to write them so that they are at an eighth grade level. But it's still, I mean, it's a lot somebody who writes usually. a lot. Well, yeah, and as somebody who writes a lot of them, there's so much that we're required by law and, um, you know, and mm -hmm. just by agency guidelines to put in there. It is overwhelming. It's overwhelming to write. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's overwhelming to read. Um, so, Again, issue. 
they had really good treatment fidelity. Um, yeah, they said that 86 per, 86% attended seven to eight sessions. So that's really good. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that is, especially when you're talking about people who, you know, chronic pain makes it really hard to do anything, but they made it to music therapy. Um, there is a table on page 192 where you can look at the different um, measures that they used for baseline week eight and the follow-up. The statistics aren't, aren't horrible. They're pretty easy to read. So um, what's interesting is that there, both groups, actually the vocal music therapy and the weightless control, um, had lower pain at the end, which is interesting. But the music therapy oh. group had lower, lower pain. <laughs> their pain so was better change. managed. They had a bigger change, mm -hmm. yep. So their pain was better managed. Um, they also had more general physical activity at the end. They had more pain self-efficacy, so they felt more in control of their pain. They uh, had... Um, it looks like they had lower anxiety at week eight and lower depressive symptoms at week eight than the waitlist control. But when we get to the follow-up, not all of that, not all of that benefit hung around. Hmm. So that is also interesting. Um, that it when the treatment stopped. After a while, the benefit seems to have um, stopped a little bit. Hmm. So you can't just look, do music therapy for eight weeks and have that be it, is what I've learned. Well, yeah. So <laughs> what? Yeah, and exactly what this tells us as clinicians, right? And this is where, and you and I have talked a lot about how research gets translated into clinical care. And this is one of those instances where you could look at it and go, oh, okay, well, if at 12 weeks they haven't had any intervention for four weeks, oh, and now the benefit that they received is trailing off, well, maybe that means that we need to have um, booster shots, if you will, mm -hmm. of music therapy, right? It has a specific technical mm -hmm. name, but I, I don't remember what it's called. <laughs> I like booster shots. <laughs> It's a bit of, I'm a mom, and I just take had to get my out of for vaccinations. It's a, it's a music therapy booster shot. Um, one thing I do believe in as a scientist is translating science into everyday language. So. Yes. Uh, but in terms of qualitative data, the participants had a lot of positive things to say about music therapy. And one of them was about self-management and um, feeling peaceful. Um, participants discovering, I love this idea of discovering music as a new way to help manage pain. Because if you have mm -hmm. any experience with chronic pain yourself or with somebody who has chronic pain, you know, it's mm -hmm. really hard to, I mean, it beats you down over time. Right, because you try you try technique after technique to manage the pain, and it doesn't work. And 
you know, you just think, gosh, is there anything that can help? And as one participant said, it amazes me that music has always been a part of my life, but I never associated it with dealing with pain. I never thought it would help me, help me with my pain. So togetherness was another theme that emerged from the um, focus group and this idea of social support, sharing their experiences. And I loved this, the idea that they could, that the participants could experience joy. Um, Mm -hmm. And again, when you are experiencing chronic pain, and as somebody who, I did experience chronic pain before I had surgery um, a year ago, and gosh, it, I mean, it's easy to forget that you can be happy and that you can be joyful uh-huh. when you hurt all of the time. Yes, and you um, never know when it's going to end. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Or if it's ever going to end. Right, um, right. And so then the last one was about um, this transformation, shifting perception in how the participants viewed themselves. And they talked about having this renewed sense of self, seeing themselves as capable. Again, remember from the, the McCaffrey article, this ability focused in music therapy, that music therapy is ability focused. And that comes through in this article too, um, that, gosh, I have this ability to take care of that. And that leads into empowerment, which was another theme that emerged related to transformation and then repositioning yourself. So being able to experience the world in a different way. Um, And one of the participants said um, that I got out of it that I can still be around people and interact. I don't have to close myself off like I've been doing. I was more isolated. I've been doing, I've been for about eight years that way isolating myself and I pretty much didn't do anything. Now I can go to work. I even had a date the other day. So changing how people oh. see themselves. Right. And I think that's really the power of, um, qual- of mixed methods research is that you get the numbers, but the numbers only tell part of the story. The qualitative piece helps you see the human that's experiencing right. those numbers. And if you want to see a lovely table that shows you how the quantitative and the qualitative data line up in this um, article, it's on page 199. So well done, Dr. Brought and Company. I know. That was great. Thank you, Megan, for uh, summarizing all of those for us so nicely. I really appreciate you joining me in Journal Club. And uh, we're going to be back again next month on February 7th at 10 o'clock Central Time uh, to talk about Music Therapy Perspectives, 2016, Volume 34, Number 2. Yeah. Oh, that's a long one. (laughs) Yeah, Special focus on multicultural musical consequences. I'm I'm Ooh, excited about right. it. Okay. All right. Well, thanks Have so much. Have a great much, day, and, everybody. Uh, we will. Yeah, we'll talk to you again next month. Bye. Yep. Bye.